Well, each Sunday, the New York Times book review contains an, an interview uh, that is in the uh, usually the third or fourth page of the little magazine that comes in the paper, and it's called By the Book, and I try to read that every week. I, I love books like Bill, uh, although I don't get any kickback for AD, <laughs> AD books, but... Um, if you need a used book, talk to Bill. Uh, actually, I've got a few I could give you. Uh, but the uh, book authors uh, are interviewed in this, and they pick different ones that are, are popular and have them as a part uh, of this particular um, article. And it's just a, a one-page article, but it is almost always full of interesting content that you wouldn't ordinarily know about an author. Like one question is, what books are on your nightstand? And uh, it's interesting to hear what other authors read. And some of them say, well, I don't have any books on my nightstand. I, uh, I use a Kindle or something like that. But most of them will list the different ones that they have. But one of the questions uh, that I find most intriguing is, if you could have three people over for a literary dinner, you know, have three different authors, who would they be? And that's where it gets really revealing. You can, you can really understand uh, more about your favorite author by seeing who they would have as authors over for dinner. And if I were asked that question about three preachers that I would choose to have for dinner, I would say, zero. I don't want any preachers at my house. But if I was pressed on it and had to think about and had to choose someone, I'm just really not sure who I would invite. It'd take me a while to narrow it down, but the prophet Amos would definitely be one of them. Now, Amos is a minor prophet, and maybe a lot of people would rather have a major prophet over for dinner, but I would pick Amos, and I'm thinking that he would say yes, because who is going to invite Amos over for dinner? I mean, he probably just never gets invited. He's not the ideal guest, after all. And I, I think of him a lot like John the Baptist. Uh, probably uh, not the, the best person to have over. Uh, he's great to hear if you're going to a revival. Or if you're out in the desert and you need some direction, he probably would be pretty good for that. But Amos, he's cranky. He's a bit on the self-righteous side. I mean, think about it. He's talking about, as we heard uh, Miss Lovelace read earlier, about, uh, you know, you're, you're running from uh, a bear, and all of a sudden you're taken by a lion. Or you run into your house for protection, you put your hand on the wall thinking, oh, I've made it, I'm safe, and a snake bites you. Amos is not a real fun guy. He uh, definitely likes to scare people, and a bit on the self-righteous side. He probably won't bring a gift for the host. If you have him for dinner, he's not going to bring a bottle of wine or an hors d'oeuvre or anything like that. He's just going to show up, and he's going to have a frown on his face. He probably isn't the best at making small talk with the other guests around the table. I mean, kind of like your weird uncle who... uh, who might, uh, you might see at Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner and, uh, you know, just awkward, just not uh, going to really mix well with the other guests. And if he were to say anything at dinner, it would be with fire 
and brimstone, right? Um, you know, he would say, if somebody said, uh, pass the mashed potatoes, you know, he would, he would say something, you know, uh, in the sa- say the same words, but say it with fire and brimstone. Uh, Amos would certainly not abide by the standard rules of etiquette to avoid any talk of religion uh, or politics at the table. You know that he would go there, and uh, he just couldn't resist. I mean, these are the only two things that he wants to talk about, religion and politics, and maybe if football had been around, he would have talked about football. I don't know. But it wouldn't take long for the other dinner guests to sigh and to be frustrated and uncomfortable, and they would soon find reasons for exiting. I mean, they, they would, maybe one of them would say, well, I have to go wash my hair, or uh, I, I have to go let the dogs out, or, you know, something. There would be some kind of excuse for leaving. And that's the effect Amos had on people. And that's pretty much what prophets do, right? They come to afflict the comfortable. They don't come to comfort the afflicted. They come to afflict the comfortable. And the powerful words and the combative style Amos used with Israel were intended not only to condemn the kingdom for injustice. And we've heard a lot about justice here today. Amos is the king of justice. I mean, Amos and Micah, they, that, that's what they're all about. And Amos is brilliant at delivering these sermons, if you look throughout the short book of Amos, you'll just see he's masterful. He was preaching in the round. He had all of these nations and people around him, and he is pointing his finger, and as, like, as Bill likes to say, old school. Uh, he's stepping on toes, and, and he is focusing in on the big problem that they had, injustice. His words were to provoke action. Prior to what we've heard in chapter 5, and I invite you to look back at those other chapters, Amos' words are directed at Israel's wealth, very wealthy, at their comfort and their self-sufficiency. God had blessed them and you know, led them into a promised land and had given them all of these resources, and they began to think, wow, look at what we've done. Look at what we have and became very self-sufficient. Israel, this northern kingdom, was guilty of gross negligence with the needs of the poor, the hungry, the sick, and the oppressed among them, and in Judah. Amos is not only going after how the other nations were slaughtering people around them and and, uh, had different practices of of, uh, injustice, He says, you as Israel, God's people, you're guilty of the same thing. You're doing the exact same things and even more sometimes than all of these pagan nations that you refer to around you. So Israel was a nation concerned first and foremost with itself. If they'd had hats they could have passed around, uh, it would say, make Israel great again or something like that, right? Uh, and would have sold them for $40 a piece. But they were horrible with matters of justice. But where they shined was with their worship. Oh, they were good at worship. They were great. And uh, they knew how to plan their festivals 
you know, they have lots of different festivals, uh, and uh, these were things that they would do very well. And they were great at making beautiful music for God. They loved to sing and and to come into the courts of God with their thanksgiving and their sacrifices and all the things that were a part of their outward expression of religion. The big problem, though, as Amos so bluntly points out, is that their worship was devoid of justice and righteousness. As the saying goes about drugstore cowboys in Texas, they were all hat and no cattle. And they were all religion, but no justice, no heart to their religion. Amos told them straight up that God hated their hypocrisy in worship. And I, I loved that uh, Dewana was the one reading this scripture because uh, I, I think her voice sounds a lot like God's voice. And if somebody needs to get after you, better be sure it's not Dewana. She knows how to do that. And so these words, as, as they are being spoken, I, I detest your worship. I detest what you're doing. Just stop altogether. And instead, let justice and righteousness flow. This is what they were to do. To get out there and let justice flow among them and through them. I'm thinking Amos would want us to hear and do the same thing. Yes, it would be an awkward dinner with him at the table, wouldn't it? If he came and sat down, you you would think, what is this guy doing? Where is he from? Why is he looking at us in such a way? We would get uncomfortable with his words and certainly with his tone. Uh, And we would soon start looking for an exit, wouldn't we? You know, I have other things to do. I don't want to be around this guy. We would look at the dinner host and wonder, why did you invite him? And why did you invite me? I don't want to be here for this. His meddling and his accusations would be offensive. But wouldn't they be accurate for us today? I mean, don't you think Amos is relevant for us today? It's certainly not 700-something B.C. But are we really all that different? I don't think so. But we would say, how dare he criticize our worship services and all the events that we have for God. Who is he to do all of this? I mean, I haven't seen him doing anything at the church. I haven't seen him coming around and serving and and, uh, even attending worship. And who does he think he is telling us to stop doing all of these things? I mean, that's not what God wants. God loves it when we come to church. That's what God really likes is when I show up for church. And even... It's even better if I go to Sunday school and church. (laughs) I get extra credit with God. And to all of that, Amos would just say what he spoke to Israel. Great. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an overflowing stream. He would just say that over and over again. And it's not our worship that bothers God. I think he would throw that in as well. It's our failure to understand that worship is incomplete 
until it results in action. You really can't say you've come to worship if there is no offering that has been made. I'm not talking about a financial offering, although that's certainly always welcomed. But an offering of yourself. What God really wants is for you to consecrate yourself on the altar of God and to say, here am I, and I'm going to be about justice and righteousness in this world. I'm going to listen to Amos, and my worship will be authentic because I will have action. So in other words, worship isn't something we do for an hour here on Sunday. What real worship does is change the world. It allows God's justice and righteousness to flow into our setting, wherever your setting may be. Bless you. So how do we let justice and righteousness roll instead of damning them up? I mean, if, it, if this is a, a, a flow that is to be happening, what is obstructing all of that? And how can we make sure we are not the damn impediments? D-A-M, by the way. Just trying to make sure y'all are still awake. We must first understand what God's justice looks like. As James Baldwin states, It is certain in any case that ignorance allied with power is the most ferocious enemy justice can have. How true that is. Could it be that there is ignorance about justice today among Bible-believing church people? Could it be that we might be guilty of not understanding justice or understanding what God means when He says justice? Maybe those of us who read and seek to follow the Bible have a selective approach to issues of justice. We know what the Bible says about adultery, and we might even tell somebody that if we suspect that they have committed that sin. But what do we know about the injustice of poverty? We quote chapter and verse about not stealing, but what verses do we know about predatory lending and usury? I remember when Interfaith was working on uh, trying to get some caps on predatory lending and going back and forth to Baton Rouge Uh, And there were lobbyists that the uh, payday lending industry kept sending uh, to uh, overcome what interfaith was doing there. And on one particular day, there was a a legislator who put forth a bill to make the Bible the official book of Louisiana. Like the pelican is the official, no wait, the mosquito is the official bird of Louisiana. And they were trying to do this with the Bible. And so what what some people in interfaith and others did was they got a bunch of Bibles together and they went through those Bibles and highlighted every verse that uh, had, had something to do with predatory lending and unjust practices and gave them to the legislators that seemed to quiet them down. You see, they picked and chose what was important to them about justice. And all along, They were missing the point of what God wanted them to know. It's still an issue we need to work on. But do we really understand it? We believe in Jesus, the great physician, but we think universal health care is unbiblical. 
It's too liberal, we might think. But it seems like Jesus was pretty liberal when he went around healing people. We love the parable of the Good Samaritan, but what do we know about God's words about welcoming the stranger and caring for refugees? Well, once we learn what God expects justice and righteousness to be, once we catch a picture for what that looks like in the Bible, we can determine what is damning them up. I mean, who is preventing their flow into our world and its issues today? When you take a look, you'll see the unjust standing in the way. Or maybe you'll see some wealthy folks who can control who does and doesn't get justice. I'm pretty sure you'll see Democrats, you'll see Republicans, you'll see Independents. They'll all be there, not all, but many of them will be there supporting this dam as well. No doubt you'll see Russians, right? Uh, You'll see some Russian oligarchs and others. We may not see ourselves there as impediments to God's justice, But what are you and I doing? If we're not obstructing the flow of God's justice, what is it that we're doing to be channels of God's justice and righteousness to where it needs to flow? I mean, right here in our world. It's a tough question. And I think it's one Amos would press us on if he came over for dinner. What are you doing about God's justice? Well, justice and righteousness flow when we get involved with a justice issue or need. It doesn't matter which one, just pick one. There are plenty of them. It could be one in the neighborhood, right here in the Highland neighborhood. It could be at your school. What a great thing it would be if you, as a student, took up a cause. Maybe it's bullying at school and said, we're we're going to put together uh, some, some way of addressing this at our school. We're, we're going to make sure it's a, a grassroots effort. It gets the attention of teachers and bullies and other people to say, we're not going to allow this to happen at our school. Maybe it is a part of a larger national or world movement. There are plenty of those. But the next step is yours. Join or create a team. Fire off an email or a letter to your representatives or to a newspaper editor when mental health programs are on the budget chopping block, which happens pretty much every year here in Louisiana. But they need to hear from us, especially as we work with visions of hope to recognize that if the state cuts in such a way that it eliminates that program, then we have a lot of people who are going to be in danger as they have no place to go, no place to live, and they're not able to access their drugs. We need to be advocates of that. Or maybe give money to a cause of justice that you believe in. Attend a city council meeting to learn what's going on or maybe what's not going on in our city. Become a volunteer with our tax preparation program. Get involved with Interfaith. Become an advocate for the working poor. Grow vegetables for the hungry. Register voters. Report unfair housing practices. Or get involved with a group here in our city that is working on racism. Whatever it is, there's a job 
for you and me to do. After leaving church last Sunday, I received a text message from, from Jenny. Um, she had already uh, gotten in the car and, and uh, had heard on the news what was going on. And she asked if I heard about First Baptist Church, Sutherland Springs. And I had not, but soon learned of the tragic event that had just happened as a, a gunman entered their worship service and uh, began shooting over 400 rounds from an assault weapon into the small congregation. Having spent several years starting and pastoring a church just a few miles down the road from First Baptist Sutherland Springs, I had been in that church many times, have friends there, and was friends with the the pastor back when I was there. And so it hit really close to home. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And when I got home and was watching the news and remembered uh, the building, it still looks just like it did 17 years ago. Jenny and I interviewed in in one of those buildings for uh, that church was helping sponsor the work that we were doing and uh, I just remember, you know, being there and remember thinking how horrible for something like this to happen. How could someone do that? And how is it that we, as a nation and a society, allow these massacres to continue in allegiance to the Second Amendment? Throughout the week, I have felt powerless as I think about the arsenal of resources that lobbyists have to prevent a ban on assault weapons, or to put in place universal background checks. Just some some common sense gun control. Maybe you feel powerless too. Just kind of give up. We get numb to all of these things. But as I felt powerless, I read Amos and more deeply appreciated his words and his tone. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an overflowing stream. So Amos may not be such a bad dinner guest after all. He may be the one that we need to hear from the most. Let's pray.